Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Today is Wednesday, July 14th, and I'm excited that we are starting a new study in the Old Testament of Nehemiah, one of those books that was kind of made famous about 12, 13, maybe 15 years ago now in the book Facing the Giants. And I remember the the offensive linemen were to build a wall for the quarterback and so forth. I think it's a decent movie, but it was something where I'm not sure if that's the meaning of this book. So, But we hear Nehemiah, we hear of this man because his name means Yahweh has comforted. It's a unique time in God's people, the history of God's people. Most were still in captivity. The temple was rebuilt, but yet the wall was still destroyed. So Nehemiah is called. And what does he do? Today we see what a godly man does and pray. We learn more about what that means for him and means for us as we know that the gifts are ready, ready for you. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we welcome back with us Pastor Ben Meyer of Hope Lutheran Church in Sunbury, Ohio. Pastor Meyer, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. It's good to be with you, Pastor Finneran. How are you? I am. I am well. I am well. It is. Uh, you know, July fourteenth means that for Minnesotans, we're in the middle of summer. In a weird way, we start thinking the um, we think the snow is coming real soon. Isn't that strange? What do you think of that being from Ohio? Well, you get you get what a couple weeks of, of summer, right? So you got to make the most of it. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. And, and Pastor Meyer, your brother is uh, even north of me, and so he knows he the reality of this even more than I do. So that's a good question. When are you coming up to hang out with your brother so we can hang out as well? You know, I need to do that. It's <laughs> been a few years, and uh, I was up there uh, I don't know, several years back, I guess now, and had my first experience ice fishing, which was fantastic. Sure. I didn't think I'd enjoy it because... Being out in the cold is not my favorite thing to do, but <laughs> you know, you get in those shanties and it's nice and warm, oh, even yeah. for me. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the uh, you call it the lazy boy ice fishing. I mean, the real tough guys are the guys and gals that go out and they do the open, the open, uh, the open lake fishing, ice fishing, where they're outside. Yeah, that, all is, bundled that up. is not me. That's not you. That not me not either. Me. Actually, not me either. But anyways. <laughs> Pastor Meyer, last time we had you on was in January, and so give us an update for you, your family, and the work of the Saints at Hope. Yeah, it's uh, nice to finally be starting to get back to normal here, and in fact, this last Saturday, we had uh, our first youth event in a while. Uh, We had it for all of the different age groups of our our youth, uh, you know, first grade through high school. And one of the things that we are able to do here is we partner with uh, an Ethiopian immigrant congregation in Columbus, Mm -hmm. and we've helped them with having a vacation Bible school. And this time they came up to us, and there was actually another Lutheran Ethiopian immigrant congregation in Columbus. So we had uh, both of them come up and join our youth, and we have a, a morning of events and then worship together and lunch together. And it was just really, really nice to finally be together and and start doing those things again. So 
uh, really, uh, really looking forward to more um, normal things in the church. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, and thanks be to God for that. That is, um, we realized that this past Sunday um, was the first was a year ago, so July twelfth last year. And when we gathered for church on July 11th, it was basically a year since we first came back to worship together. And I'll never forget wow. it because we put up barriers and we put all the masks on and, and you know, yeah. tons of hand sanitizer. We didn't even sing a song that first Sunday. And you just didn't know what to do. We were excited to be there, but I never seen anything more timid in my life. And and that such a joy not to yeah. be there, but we were looking forward to even doing more of what you're describing as well. And it kind of it kind of actually make, reminds me a little bit of, of what we see in Nehemiah, yeah. where there's so much uncertainty and wondering about the future, and uh, that's that was definitely where things were about a year ago. Absolutely. So that's a good segue, Pastor, as we uh, get back in the farm and and look to the Word of God. Can you begin our time in prayer? Absolutely, Heavenly Father, as Nehemiah looked to you in faith. And as you were faithful to your people in his time, so help us to look to you in faith as we study now and be reminded that you are always faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, Pastor Meyer, it is, I'm excited to start a new book. We, we went through all of First and Second Kings, which was, uh, I, I've described <laughs> as a roller coaster ride, and yeah. the, the reality is I don't like roller coaster rides, but there are times where you kind of have some fun, and there's a lot of times you don't have fun, and that's really how I described it, the highs and lows and, and so forth. And then we went to some psalms this past week, and, and that's been a real joy to kind of take a step back and pray, and we're going to have some of that today too. I don't want to open up too much here. But I wanted to ask you a few questions, and we've talked about this prior, kind of your who, what, where, and when type of questions of Nehemiah. Because as I mentioned, some people might only know it as the one the football coach referenced in Facing the Giants. Have you seen that movie? That's the only preparation I did for today, actually, was watching <laughs> that. So I hope that's sufficient. <laughs> that's right. Was it an eye formation or was it a veer? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> Anyways, so there's a lot of uh, situations that it connects very well with First and Second Kings, to be honest, to, to move to this book. And there's a lot of questions. So first of all, who is Nehemiah? Can you have, you have any background on that? Yeah, Nehemiah, we don't know an awful lot about him. Because outside of the book of Nehemiah, we don't really hear anything of him. Uh, but, yeah, as you indicated earlier, his, his name means Yahweh has comforted. And, and we actually get to see that take place in the book. Uh, it's most likely he was from the tribe of Judah, so the, the same tribe from which the Messiah comes. And as we get at the very end of the first chapter, he was cupbearer to the king. And to to be a cupbearer to the king is a very prominent place, uh, a place of great responsibility and trust. Um, when I read that line, I always think of the, I was a communist for the FBI, uh, just because of the way it, uh, it stands <laughs> out there. But I was a cupbearer to the king. Um, mm-hmm. He was entrusted as cupbearer to uh, first, to taste and make sure that the king wasn't going to get poisoned because, well, mm. uh, regicide was a big problem and always has been. So you have 
somebody taste your food so that you don't get killed by poison. Uh, but it was more than just uh, somebody to taste the food and to taste the wine and make sure that you weren't being poisoned. A cupbearer would have been somebody that was very, very trusted in the inner circle. And uh, somebody that the king may have even asked advice of. Uh, so he's from the tribe of Judah. He's from the people of Israel. But he is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. And so he's, he's in that foreign land with this great responsibility. Uh, and that, that's kind of where we find him at the beginning of the book. And the time range, uh, what is the time range of this book? Because, okay, for example, we ended Second Kings, and it's the destruction of the temple, and they're taken to captivity. So that's around 586 B.C. When we get to Nehemiah, what's the time range of all of these uh, of this happening? Do you know? Well, it begins uh, about 445 B.C. Um, it's... Uh, he, he says it's the 20th year, and uh, the, the 20th year of what, he doesn't say. Some have figured it was the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. Uh, however, uh, Steinman, in his really wonderful commentary, indicates that it was probably not the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, but probably, and more likely, the 20th year of Nehemiah's service to Artaxerxes. Um, and, but probably right about 445 is where we pick things up. And it really takes us to the end of the Old Testament history period. Um, when we, uh, when we get to the end of the book, it's, it's kind of the end of the, the history anyway that we have in the Old Testament. And then we enter into that, uh, intertestamental period of time, that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, as there is kind of this silence, as the people of God wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. And that's, that's very helpful, because we, when you go through the historical books, you know, in, in the Old Testament, we forget about the interconnections with everything else, you know, the different prophets that are there. Um, we look at uh, Ezra and Nehemiah seem to have a connection, which I'll ask about a little bit later. And here, this is 140 years after um, that they were put into exile, but yet the temple was rebuilt even before this point. Am I right on that? Well, here's here's the time. Here, let, let me give just a, a little bit of a, a context of, of how yeah. things mm -hmm. came about. So this is, this is about 445 B.C., uh, but... If you remember back about 438, uh, under, under uh, well, going back even further than that, you get go back to 587, you have the fall of Jerusalem and the exile that, that begins along with that. Uh, you just covered that recently with the, uh, the end of Second Kings. And so about 587, that takes place. And uh, there, that's, that leads into that exilic, exilic period, uh, that period of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, but then the Babylonians are actually conquered by the Persians. 
And the Persians have a different way of operating. The Persian, rather than conquer a people, take them out of their homeland and put them into some other place where they can serve uh, the Babylonians. The Persians would rather have conquered the people, but leave them in their homelands because first they're going to be happier in the, in that context. Second of all, they know the lay of the land. They can be more productive so they can tax them more heavily. And wow. it's all about getting that, that, uh, that money out follow, of them. Follow the cash. That's right. Follow the That's cash. right. That's right. <laughs> okay. uh, so they, the Persians decide, you know, rather than have these people living in exile, let's send them back. And so about 538, under Cyrus, some of the Jews are sent back from exile. Uh, and the beginning of the rebuilding of Jerusalem starts. So 537, the altar in Jerusalem is rebuilt. 536, the rebuilding of the second temple gets started. And then about five. 30, the work on the temple stops. Finally, about 516, about 70 years after the temple is destroyed, the temple is built again. You have the second temple. Hmm. And so, they, yeah, the, the temple has been rebuilt by the time we get to Nehemiah. And it's been rebuilt for you know, 70 plus years. Yeah. However... Jerusalem itself is in shambles. Jerusalem is still a mess. And so you have the temple rebuilt, but people are just still squeaking by. The, the quality of life is not very good. The worship life is not very good. Uh, things are just not in good shape. And so that's where we find things when, when Nehemiah hears about Jerusalem, he, he's hearing just how bad it is. And you might, he might've been thinking all of these people have been there for all of this time. Surely Jerusalem is starting to get back to normal, get back to what it once was, maybe not as great as it once was, but it's got to have regained at least a degree of that. And he finds uh, in fact that things are, in, in absolute uh, squalor. Things are not in good shape at all. That's a great um, contextual uh, layout, Pastor, because it gets so confusing. Like, if you try to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I mean, historically, it's very confusing. And so for us to realize that, okay, this is different than King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, we might have learned this <laughs> in Veggie Tales. Um, but there's still confusion there. And then you have the king of Cyrus, or Cyrus, the king, king Cyrus, and that right. makes a complete change of the Persians. It reminds me of when the Assyrians took over Israel, their their philosophy in Israel was, uh, the northern kingdom, was not only take them out of their homeland, but then insert other people from other lands into that land in order yeah. to really exert their control, which is interesting to me that the Persians figured out that, well, actually it might be more financially viable for us to send them back, make some money, do all these kind of things as well. So that those are important historical uh, realities that if you don't, if you just read the Bible without looking at the history, boy, it gets confusing. So that was a great way for us to be able to look at that. Anything else in the context as we look at um, our at Nehemiah this morning? 
Well, I don't know if you want to get to some of the, the themes that yeah. we're going to encounter. Yep. Yeah, so in what are Nehemiah. some of the. If we look at the whole book, um, this is good yeah. for us to remember as we filter through every chapter, is what are some major themes that you found? Well, one of the themes that you're going to see is the destructiveness of sin. You know, community is broken down. Families are um, not thriving. Uh, security is missing. There's just no sense of being safe. Uh, People are scraping by. Their eyes are not raised up to the Lord. Their eyes are just looking down and, and just trying to get by and trying to figure out how to scrape by day after day after day. There is no uh, lifting our eyes and expecting the Lord to do some greater thing. Uh, but we also hear of the grace of God and how he continuously and graciously provides for his people in spite of their failures. All of the things that, that, that led to the destruction of Jerusalem were the failures of the people, the failures of those kings of the people. And the result of all of that sin was the destruction of Jerusalem, and they're still living with some of the fruit of that sin and that destruction. And what we see happen in Nehemiah is as the, the, the law of God is reinserted, as the, the way in which God organizes life to operate, as he becomes at the center of all things, and as uh, the, the families remember what they are called to, and the community remembers what they are called to, little by little, order is restored, security is restored, the religious practice is restored to its rightful place, and as a result, uh, there is greater prosperity. There is a greater um, joy in life. And, and it's a reminder for us, I think, that when we live according to the ways that God has given us, there is joy in that. There is satisfaction in that. And uh, it's going to simply be a, a greater blessing to us and to those around us mm -hmm. than when we indulge in our sinful ways. And so I like how you said this, the fruit of sin. Um, we usually think of fruit as good, but then there's fruit that, well, this fruit I don't like. So that's kind of what I'm thinking of when you say, because you usually think of fruit as like of the Holy Spirit, but then there's right. that fruit that comes from sin, which is not good fruit. I mean, this is the fruit I yeah. don't want to eat. This is the fruit that gets rotten, um, rotten. Exactly. Exactly right. And so that that's a great way for us to be able to talk about that because it does give a visual of sometimes we act like, well, sin's forgiven, therefore everything is good. No, we learn this in the Old Testament. The, the fruit of sin continues to kind of stick to people, even if forgiven, because there's consequences of it. And we truly see that in the book of Nehemiah, for sure. Other themes that you have? I think those are the main ones I wanted to hit on uh, this morning. Great. Awesome. So finally, this is kind of uh, academic, and you're an academic, Pastor Meyer. Um, academic type of question is in the commentary by Dr. Steinman, which is a, a real gift from Concordia Publishing House, Concordia Commentary on Nehemiah and Ezra. So did you find right. anything about the connection of those two books? They always seem to go together when people speak of them. Yeah, and they really do go together. Um, you know, Ezra um, predates Nehemiah, and it, it tells 
the account of that first group that comes and settles in Jerusalem and uh, begins by rebuilding the altar. That's the first thing they rebuild is the altar because they recognize what brought this destruction. It was idolatry. It was the worship of false gods. It was the rejection of the true God. And so the very first thing that they rebuild is the altar. And then they begin with rebuilding the, the temple. Uh, and so in in Ezra, we hear about how that takes place and some of the challenges that they go through. And they are able to be successful in rebuilding the temple, but there's still a lot more to do. And um, I think I think uh, we can relate a lot to to where the people might have been um, as we are coming out of COVID and it's just been a grind and it's been a challenge and you're starting to try to re- restart ministries again and it takes so much more effort to start from a complete stop than it does when things are already moving, when there's some momentum. And in Ezra, they are starting from a complete stop and they get this far, but then that energy wanes, that uh, drive uh, just isn't there. And pretty soon there's no effort to continue to rebuild Jerusalem. It becomes more, uh, we're just trying to get by and people start thinking about themselves and just trying to, to get by for themselves. And they're not thinking about the bigger community and so there's this period of time after the temple is completed where there's not much that gets accomplished, really. And that's where Nehemiah comes in, and he, he becomes kind of that governmental force that helps reestablish things. You know, we talk about the kingdom of the left, the kingdom of the right. Ezra, he was really the, the church person. And Nehemiah becomes that uh, political person, that governmental person. And they actually work together to accomplish a greater thing when you have both of those uh, doing their jobs. And and so Nehemiah um, is the continuation of the book of Ezra in a lot of ways. That is great because that gets confusing as well because you um, – you see the how the story goes, but you're not quite sure the distinction there. And like you said, Ezra is a churchy guy, Nehemiah is a right. political figure, and that's way right. oversimplifying it, but it really is helpful yeah. to as we fill in the pieces. Now I'm feeling guilty that we didn't do Ezra first. But anyways, I'll get over <laughs> that real quickly. Um, but it, it's, it's fascinating to me. I want to make this one theological point before we get to the text is – the first thing they do is to bring the altar back to Jerusalem. What yeah. was the downfall of the kingdoms was when Jeroboam decided to put altars in Dan and Bethel, you know, to right. the false gods. So it, this is where we see God's hand and the dab of grace throughout the Old Testament where they they realize the past sin, they realize where they have been, and they realize what's the most important, and we see that play out in a very, I would say, very small way, but it's very significant when we look at all the Old Testament 
and how God's people were. So, Pastor, one last well, and, time. And it points ahead. forward. It points forward to to Christ. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Here is the altar. What is an altar used for? Sacrifice. And what is at the heart and center of, of what they do? They reestablish this altar for the sacrifice to the Lord. Well, the Lord's going to provide the sacrifice, you know, as, as oh. it does in Exodus, uh, or in, in Genesis, you know, that the Lord will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, right? And so the Lord does provide that lamb of sacrifice. And all of this reminds us also, this is all in God's hands. He brings the people back to Jerusalem because that's part of the plan of salvation. He needs them to be there so that, uh, in the fullness of time, the only begotten Son of God can become incarnate, can be born into the world so that he can be that perfect Savior for all. The final and the final sacrifice for you. So, you know, here's the deal. We got to get into the text, actually. So <laughs> let's go to Nehemiah <laughs> chapter 1. And these are all important background um, for us to understand it even better. So thank you for that teaching, Pastor. So let's open up our Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 1, and we'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And here's what we're going to do, Pastor. I'm going to read these first three verses, and then we'll go to our break and talk about it after our break. Verses 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of the brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As we hear these words, we need to take our break. We are starting the book of Nehemiah with Pastor Ben Meyer, and we will be right back. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org And welcome back. We are studying Nehemiah chapter 1. And I want to remind our listeners that there's been a number of different ways that you can listen to KFUO. One of them traditionally has obviously been on the radio. If you're in the area of St. Louis, it's 850-KFUO-AM. And, but also, we've recently obviously done a lot of work with uh, KFUO.org, which is our website, and also the, the um, podcast that you can find on any of your, your podcast app. One situation has come upon us that we now have a KFUO app. So if you go to your app store and just look up KFUO, um, Christ for You, you will find the app and you can listen to that, as we say, for you anytime, anywhere. Just a reminder to our listeners to be able to listen to that. 
And as we look at Nehemiah uh, chapter 1 this morning, Pastor, we read the first three verses where we get a little bit of context where Nehemiah is, but what, what is the news that he hears about his homeland in Judah? Yeah, things are bad. Things are bad. You know, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Not only are the gates destroyed by fire, they remain destroyed by fire. Uh, city walls are no joke. If you don't have city walls, you don't have security. One of the reasons they built city walls was to protect against uh, uh, a foreign military coming to attack. But they also built city walls to protect against thieves. If you have walls, then you know who's inside and you know you can keep other people outside. Uh, but if you don't have city walls and you don't have the city gate, then you have no way to control who comes in and out. And this is part of why there is such uh, squalor, such chaos in Jerusalem, because there is no safety. There's no way to know that if I work hard and provide for my family and bring this home, that I can keep it because there's no security. And so he hears how bad things are in Jerusalem. And he, he may have thought, you know, after all this time, things are probably in pretty good shape, right? They're making some progress. And, and then he receives this word, and it's, it's just not the case. Things are bad. Things continue to, uh, to look like a, a city that's been absolutely uh, ravaged. And what's interesting to me is when we end Second Kings, obviously I'm going back to Second Kings, that's just what we had done, is there's a very clear understanding that you can't trust the walls to save you. I mean, this is one of right. the, the difficult tensions that I think is left here is that you can't trust the temple's always going to be there. You can't trust that the walls are going to be there because that's when they besiege the city, right? They'll just surround you and then right. they'll just starve you out, I guess you would call it. However... There is a there's a real purpose for that, and you explained it so well. Is there's a purpose for that because that's what you need for a society to have that wall. We don't, you know, we we have a lot of rhetoric in our in our country about walls and how terrible they are. But but for them, that was a needed situation in order for protection. It's not the end all. You can't say we got a wall. We don't need to have guardsmen. We don't need to have a military. We don't need to have a government or something. But it definitely is right. a needed situation that if that's broken down. It's hard for them to establish um, uh, stability for their families. And not only that, but also for their worship life, that the temple's there, but it could be ransacked at any moment by anybody, the Chaldeans or other people Correct. that will just come in and do Correct. that. So that, that is a very yeah. helpful... And, and, uh, when, and when, uh, when life is such a struggle um, just, just to you know, get by, it makes it harder for people to then say, you know, to, to say, I need to set aside that Sabbath day and be in the Lord's house. Mm. It's just another obstacle. And so Nehemiah is not only seeing this as a government person, um, but he also is a man of faith, which, right. which is wonderful. I mean, this is the verses four through 11 that we're going to, we're going to focus our attention on now are so important in the simplistic reality of, okay, we have trial, we have grief, we find out news of something, how should we respond? 
So verse 4, yeah. I just want to focus on verse 4 to begin before we get into the prayer. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, Pastor, I want to focus on this. First of all, it's in the it's in first person, so I heard these words. So he's definitely put a personal touch to this book as Nehemiah writes it. It doesn't always do that throughout the book, but he does begin that way. And he mm-hmm. does something when he grieves that I think we as Americans are not good at, is he actually yeah. wept and mourned for days. Any thoughts on on how he responds right away? Well, and, and, and he fasts mm-hmm. and prays as well. Right. So, uh, yeah, he his response is he feels it, right? He is thinking of them. He is mourning for his brothers and sisters. And, I, I yeah, I think we, in our culture, we tend to want to, if, if something's uh, not going well, uh, uh, you know, chin up, move on, right? There's no place for, for mourning. There's no place for weeping and sadness. And that's to our detriment mm-hmm. because it doesn't allow people, first of all, to process grief, uh, but second of all, to when when there is something worth grieving, to, to grieve that, but, but to do so in a healthy way, right? He doesn't grieve, period. He grieves with fasting and prayer. And so where is he turning in the midst of his grief? He's turning to the Lord. And, and fasting is something we're not very good at as Americans either, right? We, right. we like to eat. <laughs> uh, but fasting's good. Taking a, a break from eating to focus on spiritual things is good. And, and he does that here. He refrains from eating, does not indulge his own body, but he's thinking of others. And I think with, with the fasting, that is reminding him of his brothers and sisters who are in Jerusalem and the difficulty they're going through. But then throughout, he turns to the Lord in prayer. And that's something, quite honestly, as Americans, we tend to not be very good at, too, because what do we like to do? We like to fix things. Something's wrong, I will fix it. Something needs to happen, I will do it. And prayer for us oftentimes feels like a passive thing, and it's not. It's not. It is taking up the weapons that the Lord has given us and making use of them. You know, Luther talks about that in the, small, in the large catechism. We need to know this. All our shelter and protection rest in prayer alone, for we are far too weak to deal with the devil and all his power and followers who set themselves against us. They might easily crush us under their feet. Therefore, we must consider and take up those weapons with which Christians must be armed in order to stand against the devil uh, for what do you imagine has done such great things up till now? And he goes on to, to describe how prayer has sustained the German people. And then prayer sustains us. Uh, so when we, when we take up prayer, we're taking up the weapons that God has given to us. It's not just a passive thing. It is an active thing. And that is something I want to unpack a little bit. So first of all, 
Um, he weeps and mourns. And the reaction he has is fasting, which if anybody wants to look more into this, and you have a Lutheran study Bible in uh, page 189 in Leviticus chapter 16, it talks about when you fast. You know, Jesus speaks about fasting in Matthew 6. Um, and that's something that maybe we'll get to that, but I wanted to focus on the prayer part. So definitely something for people to peruse. But for the prayer part, it's interesting to me as you say that because often, and I find myself thinking this also, is that we hear someone say, well, I'm going to pray about that. And then quickly, as Americans, we will say, well, we need to do more than pray. <laughs> um, it's, it's, yeah. very, it's a quick, yeah, I, I have to admit, I fall into that as well. And so here yeah. you said something very important of, of prayer is an active uh, situation and, and how God answers those prayers. Obviously, that's where the power comes from. But tell us more about this prayer being active and what that means for the Christian. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I, I, prayer is going to the one who can actually help, right? We we like to think that uh, God really needs us to accomplish things. He does not. He, he chooses to work through us. He chooses to use us at times, but he doesn't need us for anything. When we take a prayer, we're talking to the one who is almighty, right? He made all things. He has power over all things. This is the one who can calm the storm simply with a word, who can raise the dead simply with a word. And so when we take a prayer, it's taking up our sword, it's taking up our shield, and it is allowing the Lord to do battle. Remember when the Israelites enter into the promised land, who goes before them? Who wins the battles for them? Joshua is the general, but Joshua is not really the general. The Lord is. Mm. The Lord gives him the instructions, and when they do things the way that the Lord has given them to do, they are successful. When they fail to do that, well, then that's when things don't work out very well. Uh, so when we take up prayer, we're asking the Lord to be the one to do the, the work, to, to win the battle for us. And one of the reasons I think it's difficult for us to do that is because of pride. We like to think that things depend on us and that we are really, really important. Uh, but, but that's just not the case. The Lord is the one who will win the day. The Lord is the one uh, to whom we must turn because he is the one who can actually accomplish things. And Nehemiah f- believes this. I mean, when he, when he sits down to pray, he, it's an it's a act of faith, and that's the same for us. He believes exactly what you're saying, and his prayer reflects that reality that is God who has the power in this prayer, not mine. Um, we do have a mm-hmm. tendency, kind of like you're saying, to think that we can solve the problem. So it, so when someone's praying in America, there are times, and I've fallen into this as well, where we think, well, if more people are praying, then God's going to kind of be bullied in order to do what we want them to do. <laughs> Those kind of things. Or we have a more eloquent prayer, or we have a yeah. more, in, in, uh, for praying more often or something, as opposed to, the gift that prayer is, is because it comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, and still sustains his creation. And so this is, what he does is not only just the act of it, but also the faith in it and the reality of God who answers these prayers. So I, I we could talk all day about this, but anything else before we get to this prayer and hear what he actually prays? Well, I think it's, it's important to remember, too, 
he has this wonderful position of power where he has access to the king, but that's not his first response. Mm -hmm. His first response is not, how do I wield my power? How can I use my position? His first response is to pray. And then later, he'll, he'll take advantage of those things, right? He'll make use of those things. But, but first, first he prays. And may we do the same. Um, so let's, mm-hmm. let's dig into the text. This is a good example of, and I'm also not recovering, I am just getting through the Psalms that we've been praying um, on this program. And that's just another reminder for me of how to utilize the Psalms in a very similar way. So verses 5, and we'll go through verse 9. I don't necessarily like splitting this up, but I think we're able to do that yeah. as we look 5 through 9. And reminder to our listeners, to, to hear the words he has to say, and also how can our prayer life reflect the same. Verse 5, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God that keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So Nehemiah starts praying. How, how would you describe this prayer if you were to break down this prayer to this point? Well, he begins with repentance. Mm. Right? He's confessing where they have failed. He is, um, he is going back to what the Lord has said. And he's saying, Lord, you are right. Uh, we, you, you keep your, your covenant. You are gracious and merciful, right? Steadfast love is, is abundant with you. Uh, but now we're asking you to hear our prayers, the prayers of those who have sinned against you, right? Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. He doesn't say those people over there, it's their fault. You know, they, they messed it all up, but I'm doing the right thing here. See, Lord, you should hear my prayer because of I, I'm so righteous. No, he, he comes as a sinner, and he is praying for his fellow sinners. And he is going to the Lord in full honesty, full transparency. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Right? We failed, Lord. This is the truth. We did not keep the Ten Commandments. We did not keep the law. We have been unfaithful. And he starts to use language that is right out of the Mosaic Covenant and right out of the, the prayer of the, for the de- dedication of the temple that, that Solomon prays. And he is reflecting that language. Uh, he's, he's, you know, in verse eight, 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you and the peoples. But, verse 9, if you, re- if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them. And this is going back to Leviticus chapter 26. Mm. You know, if they confess their wickedness, and the wickedness of their ancestors and uh, in the unfaithfulness when they were unfaithful to me. So this is Leviticus 26, where the Lord says, now, as part of the covenant, if you don't do what you have promised to do, here's going to be the consequences. If you act wickedly, uh, you will be scattered among the peoples. And, and that's almost a direct quote from Deuteronomy 4.27. You know, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, it says. And uh, then it goes on, though, if you, but if you return to me and keep my commandments, right? If you come back in repentance, uh, and this is going back to, again, to that Mosaic covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, uh, and if you turn to the Lord your God and listen to his voice according to everything that I am commanding you today, uh, then the Lord promises, I will bring back my people. I will restore them. So what Nehemiah does is he calls on the Lord's promises. He recalls the covenant God has made, and he says, Lord, I know you're going to be faithful to that, and, and I'm calling on you to be faithful to that. Uh, in, in certain ways, this is kind of like us with remembering our baptism, Right. You have claimed me, you have washed me, you have made me your own. I am yours, and I'm calling on you in prayer as a dear child asks a dear father uh, with that same confidence that you're going to hear and you're going to answer. And so Nehemiah does not in any way, shape, or form try to go to the Lord and plead his case based on his righteousness or based on the right actions of the people. He doesn't say, well, we've really tried hard, Lord. Now maybe you can help us. Mm. He comes, he confesses the sin, and he says, Lord, we need your help. And he says it this way, that the steadfast, so he prays knowing the steadfast love that the Lord has for him. He asks the Lord to have his ears be attentive, not you know, you better listen to me or else kind of mentality. You know, it definitely is that focus that he realizes he needs help. And he references Moses. We're not exactly sure. Like you said, there's Leviticus um, uh, uh, there's teaching in there. It's not a direct quote. But he goes back to right. this this command of Moses and realizes that he needs the Lord's help. And this does remind me, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is, is we have the story of Martin Luther is teaching his barber how to pray. Mm-hmm. And it really struck me in this prayer, as it was in Second Kings with Hezekiah's prayer. It's very similar because Luther gave the acronym to Peter the, the barber, the, the four letters, A-C-T-S, so Acts, like the book of Acts, you know, adoration, confession, um. Uh, shoot, supplication. Uh, supplication. Or, uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and supplication. And supplication. I'm sorry. I, I yeah. forgot the Thanksgiving part, yeah. which is crazy. But anyways, so he <laughs> definitely, he, he, he adores the Lord. He confesses not only for him, but the people. 
thanksgiving mm-hmm. and supplication. So he's getting to more of, of some of those things. But I thought it was yeah. perfect. I mean, Luther just didn't make this yeah. up out of nowhere, but this is good for us to think about how we pray as well. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, I've been going through that, that uh, writing uh, from Luther uh, as part of my morning devotions recently. So oh, wonderful. It's interesting, yeah, how, how similar this is. Uh, he, he gives glory to God, right? And then he confesses his sin and the sin of his people. Uh, then he, give, uh, he gives thanks to God for his faithfulness, and he asks the Lord to help. And this is a wonderful model for our prayer life, right? We don't, you don't have to pray in this way, but you can, and it's good. And, and so when we don't know how to pray, well, there's a form that you can use, right? What do I have? Like, how can I give glory to God? Um, what do I need to confess to the Lord? What is there for me to give thanks to God for? And then uh, what things do I need to pray about that, that I need help with or others need help with? Um, and, and you can bring all of those things to the Lord, knowing for the sake of Christ, he's going to hear and he's going to answer. And I do, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. As I've read this, um, I think you could take this prayer and pray it as your prayer. As I look at it further, um, that we could mm-hmm. pray it, and it would be our prayer as well. I mean, this, I'm not, I'm not putting up the level of the Lord's prayer or anything. And obviously, right. we're not, you know, uh, confessing for Israel in those days. But I'm just saying, you could easily. So we can confess for the sake of the church. Absolutely, right? yeah, yeah. Where we, as the church, have mm-hmm. have sinned against mm-hmm. the Lord. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, certainly. It's so good, and certainly. Th- it's a good reminder to uh, you, our um, to our listeners is that as we've gone through the Psalms, and now now starting Nehemiah, how if you were to sit with any pastor and say, what are, the, what are some of the biggest struggles you have? And I think it's just prayer. I mean, to, to be able to pray and to allow prayer to be prayer, um, to trust in the Lord to take care of his church, to take care of us, um, to be able to use the wisdom he's, that he gives and ask for it and ask for faith and all these things, that we all are struggling with prayer. And it's a good reminder mm-hmm. for us that here is a great example for us to receive instruction and also to trust that we know that there is power in prayer and the power comes from the Lord. So, any, any last thoughts before we move on to the next few verses, Pastor? Yeah, I think one of the, re- one of the things I like to remind people is uh, it's not that prayer in and of itself is powerful, but there is power in prayer because of the one to whom we pray, mm. and he is all-powerful. Therefore, our prayers have power because of, of the one to whom we turn. Let us continue. We have about five minutes left here, Pastor. Let's finish this out, and then let's wrap it up with some major themes and applications. Verse 10 and 11. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to their servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now, let me start with the, the beginning, like you said about the communist quote you had, is it's <laughs> very strange what Nehemiah does at the end. It's like, you get this great prayer, and you say, amen, and then he just says, oh, by the way, I was a cupbearer to the king. 
chapter right, two. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think it's a great it's a great way of summarize or of of, uh, of furthering things. Right. There you go. When he when he ends with that, you're like, wait, what? Yeah. Oh, I got to read more. What's going on here? Ah, um, and, and so okay. literarily, I think there is something interesting that he does there. Also, there is great humility in this. He doesn't begin with this. He doesn't begin, I am the cupbearer to the king. You better pay attention to me because you know the standing that I have, people. Uh, he, he almost just kind of slips it in there, right? right? Because for the sake of what happens next, it's information that's necessary to know. Uh, but I, I love how he just kind of flips that in at the very end. <laughs> that is a good point. I really appreciate how you said that because it, 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 it shows that the story doesn't end in this prayer, you know, and that, that it, it, it is definitely something where he shows that he grieves um, just like everybody mm-hmm. else, that he does have a position, that he cares about these people. I would not make a one-to-one here either, but when Jesus prays over Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you see that same kind of grief and understanding that this was not a prayer or a service of, well, I guess I have to do this. This is a prayer out of love. This is a, a service out of love uh, for the people and also for the Lord. So, yeah, that is a great that's a great um, way to describe that because I just wanted to make a joke about it, but you brought it to reality, so that's good. So verses ten, verses ten and eleven, I like how he confesses not sins, but confesses the truth of God. They are your servants and yeah. your people, whom you have redeemed yeah. by your great power. So, Pastor, we have about three minutes left. What are some last thoughts you have on these on these last verses ten and eleven and prayer and what it means for us? It says, "Yeah." Who are they, right? Mm. They are your servants. What defines who they are? What defines who they are is their relationship to the Lord and his having chosen them, right? Um, I will be your God. You will be my people. I have chosen you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So they are his because he has made them his own. Uh, He has redeemed them. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. He brought them back from exile. And now he's going to bring even more people back from exile. Uh, And so the Lord has heard that prayer and he is answering that prayer in his time, according to his wisdom. Uh, But then uh, verse 11, when he, he prays, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, Nehemiah recognizes I'm not the only one praying for this. I'm not the only one praying about this. Um, and this is a, a reminder for us, Christianity is never individualistic. It is always being a part of the community. And so we're going to see the Lord restoring community, restoring uh, relationships, uh, as as his will is done and brought about through Nehemiah and through even that secular Persian government as the Persians send Nehemiah and others back to Jerusalem. So, Pastor, as you look at this, we have about a minute left. How would you summarize this chapter um, for what it says and what it means for us? I think it just reminds us that no matter the situation, the right response is prayer. Uh, he hears this bad news, and his first response, Nehemiah's first response, is 
turn to the Lord in prayer. And that is something that we can certainly learn from. And that if we would just do that, it would benefit us greatly uh, because it would it would lessen the, the weight of burden that we would feel because we would be taking it to the one who can actually do something about it. Um, and uh, simply, it is the act of faith, right? What does faith do? Faith prays. And so as people who have been redeemed, who have been called and chosen and are baptized into Christ, when things are difficult, when things are good, our first response should be to turn to the Lord in prayer. Pastor Ben Meyer of Hope Lutheran Church in Sunbury, Ohio, uh, bringing us God's strong word from Nehemiah chapter 1, starting us off on the right foot. Pastor Meyer, thank you again for being our guest. Good to be with you. God's blessings. Saints of our Lord, it says in the, the hymn, Hear us, Father, when we pray. Hear us, Father, when we pray through your Son and in your Spirit. By your Spirit's word convey all that we through Christ inherit, that as baptized heirs we may truly pray. That's what Nehemiah did. You are a chosen one, a servant of the Lord of the Most High, not only to pray for yourself, but to pray for others so that his name may be glorified, that he would sustain us and keep us in the one true faith. This is our hope, and this is our strength. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands. Music